1: inventing tomorrow starts now and here are your hosts vanessa Alava and sue robinson welcome to the we get real af podcast i'm vanessa Alava, and i'm sue robinson
0: before we get started today we would so appreciate it if you would subscribe rate and comment on the
1: show if you've ever looked up at the sky and wondered what it would be like to live on another planet this episode is made for you. We're joined today by theoretical physicist, technologist, and aspiring extraterrestrial. Yes, you heard that right. Dr. Adriana Murray. Adriana is the founder of Proudly Human, an organization pioneering new frontiers in research and technology for a future in harmony with each other and the environment, whether here on Earth or beyond. Proudly Human's off-world project has launched a series of off-world settlement simulation experiments demonstrating off-grid capabilities in the most extreme environments on Earth. So without further ado, Adriana, welcome to the welcome.
2: show. Thanks so much for having me, Vanessa. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Well, you want to dive right on yes. in. So please tell us a little bit about yourself and the journey that's led you to this fascinating career path and lifestyle.
2: So um, I'm a South African. I have a background in physics. Theoretical quantum physics, so we can dive deeper into that topic um, in a <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no podcast is complete without a deep dive into quantum physics. Um, no <laughs> kidding. Um, and I've always dreamed of exploring worlds beyond the one that we are currently experiencing. So for most people, Earth is their favorite planet. But for me, it's a, a real consideration when looking up at the night sky as to, to what other destinations may lie in store. Um, so I've I've done a, a variety of different um, professions and activities, but right now I'm dedicating all my time to Proudly Human and our series of off-world experiments, as I believe we get really, really close to seeing the first humans departing from Earth uh, to whether it's the Moon or Mars or beyond, and I think we're all really lucky to be alive in this moment in history um in spite of all the uncertainty and anxiety that's going around because this is a, a really important moment for humanity i believe
0: Adriana if you would describe high level what is a theoretical physicist and how did that discipline lead you to this fascination with extraterrestrial living or was it something else that that led you there
2: so i think I was just trying to get to the bottom of things. So um, I was that kind of child who would always ask more questions and why and why and why and why whenever an answer was given, trying to get to the bottom of things. And, um, yeah, so I've always thought of science as being a part of, of what it is to be to be human, which is to ask tough questions and then spend a, a lot of time collaborating and trying to figure out what the answers to these questions may be. And that's given us scientific theory, basically, which has enabled all of the technologies that we find so indispensable in our daily lives is at its origin, the result of people asking uh, what's going on here, basically. <laughs> so the most fundamental theory we have of reality is quantum physics um, and uh, theoretical quantum physics is, is trying to understand sort of mathematically how these, how these objects that we believe exist uh, below the, the surface of the world that we see, things like molecules and even smaller atoms and uh, even within those atoms, electrons and other, other objects. Um, so, trying to understand how these interact with each other is at the basis of, of quantum physics, and also at the basis, the most basic understanding we have of reality are, are these particles, these building blocks, this energy, that kind of um, yeah results in what we see around us in, in the in the physical world. Um, so, jumping from this the tiny world of quantum physics uh, to space um, <laughs> might be your your next question because these two worlds might seem to be quite far apart. Uh, thinking about the very large scales of galaxies and and thinking about the tiny objects like electrons that lie at the the heart of the matter that forms these galaxies.
1: So walk us through the day in the life of a theoretical physicist.
2: So I'm trained as a theoretical physicist, but not working as a theoretical physicist now. But for that, I would refer people to... The Big Bang Theory, uh, who has made being a theoretical physicist famous. (laughs) Um, So if you're working as a theoretical physicist, you'll typically be uh, working in academia, which would mean you're at a university. Um, A lot of your time would be spent uh, teaching or researching and collaborating with others. Um, A lot of your work would be spent contributing to knowledge. Uh, So what kind of projects did I work on while I was doing theoretical physics? Um, We looked at... What I really enjoyed was something tangible, which often theoretical physics is not. We were studying photosynthesis, so theoretically, so we didn't actually go out and sort of take samples from the environment, that's the role of the biologist. But um, from a quantum perspective, the quantum part of quantum biology was looking at the theory around experiments that uh, people around the world are doing on photosynthetic complexes. So bacteria are single-celled and easier to study than higher plants. Um, like the trees and plants we see outside. So, we'd uh, look in detail at how these single celled organisms absorb light and function as living systems. Um, and the benefits of work like this, and this is just one example, would be to uh, mimic biology. So, to base technologies, especially on the nanoscale, which we are real, real newcomers to. I mean, as humans, we've been dabbling in the nano world for just a few decades, whereas organisms like photosynthetic bacteria have been uh, operating in a highly optimized way on exactly these scales for like four billion years so yes a lot, of, a lot of stuff we could learn from nature um physics typically or physics doesn't always collaborate with biology but so quantum biology is a really exciting application of of quantum physics to to the biological world
1: biomimicry is so fascinating, and we've seen several different applications for that and how it just makes sense because, as you said, it's been working in the Mm -hmm. natural world for for eons and eons.
0: I would love to dive into the off-world settlements and what you're doing here on Earth to prepare for Mars. I know that you've... um, you've scouted antarctica and you've scouted oman and ethiopia for sort of the most extreme conditions that we have here on earth in preparation for your team to hopefully eventually uh, settle on mars so walk us through that whole process and you know those two locations how they emulate what we might expect to find on mars and what a day in the life of uh, antarctica and and the ethiopian desert in, entails for saddlers. So I think yeah, as, as
2: Vanessa was saying, let's let's look at these environments and think what makes them extreme. And there are such creatures as extremophiles that actually do live in the kind of desert environments like in Ethiopia. Um, there are there's geological activity from the bottom. So there are these bubbling kind of sulfuric uh, bodies of water where you would think nothing would be able to survive. But in fact, even there, we find extreme bacteria that are able to, to survive. Let's take Antarctica, on the other hand, extremely cold, obviously, in winter, dark, obviously, a lot of the time in winter when the sun doesn't even come up. Um, but even in these places, uh, less so in the most extreme parts of Antarctica, but certainly around the coast, Antarctica we do see organisms eking out an existence there so whether or not we can learn lessons from these organisms um, as part of the the technological development towards being self-sustaining there but as a as a first attempt um, we want to use existing technology to demonstrate that we can live in a kind of pop-up off-grid sustainable and all of these kind of ideas mesh together way no matter how extreme the environment. So on the one hand, this is preparing for what is a, a truly extreme environment on the surface of Mars, um, but it's not completely unprecedented. So when we try to draw comparisons between Mars and Earth, these are, these are the kind of places on Earth that we want to go train in. So, for example, on Mars, temperatures um, can reach below negative 100 degrees Celsius, um, but uh, on average they're around negative 60, negative 70 so uh, i don't, didn't look up exactly what that is in Fahrenheit, but negative forty degrees Celsius is the same as negative forty degrees Fahrenheit, so colder than that um, mm. the you know, <laughs> no. cold, very cold. Yeah. So, So in Antarctica, this is the temperature during winter. So a lot of testing can take place there um, in terms of testing technological performance at those temperatures um, and trying to sustain life. So not only the people that we bring, you'll, of course, need specialized equipment to go outdoors and a sealed habitat where we can maintain a a reasonable um, environmental (laughs) set of uh, characteristics inside the the house, let's say. but uh, also in terms of growing food. So uh, we are, of course, not going to aim to bring all of the food with us wherever we travel around to. Um, in fact, that's the definition of colonization is the establishment of crops in the place that one explores to. So, for example, Cape Town was first established as a resupply station for trips from Europe to further east in, in India uh, and other places in the east uh, where crops were immediately established. So this was part of the first step of establishing a community in a far-off place and it will be no different um, when we go to the desert or when we go to Antarctica or when we go to the moon or Mars. We'll need local food supplies and growing growing food in these extreme conditions is something we'll have to tackle um, and uh, something we'll have to think about how we can do that in a low, low resource way.
1: Apart from exposing yourself to extreme environments and studying plants and colonization for a potential mission to Mars, how are you and your team mentally preparing for a journey of this magnitude?
2: So I think first things first, um, and uh, getting your head around a mission to Mars is something that the the Mars 100, uh, as part of the Mars 1 project, had had to do on a rather short sort of um, time frame back when we thought we were literally going to be departing from Earth in 2024. Um, So that was a a good uh, good foundational um, approach to, to wrapping your head around it. Now it seems like it, it's not going to be as simple as uh, being selected as one of the 100 in the Mars One project. Um, therefore, I've established Proudly Human to to really dedicate not only my time but a growing network of, of contributors towards towards this goal. Um, and the goal is, is not not primarily getting a few people, including me, off the planet. You know, that's not how I would phrase it at all. The goal is to advance ourselves as a species the goal is to deepen our understanding of the network of living systems that we are really privileged to share with here on Earth. Um, you know, On Mars, there is no such network as far as we know. We will need to establish that network from scratch. I'm envisaging space exploration from quite a different perspective than a lot of people might imagine it in terms of a group of men, let's admit, uh, American men going to the moon and putting their flag there and then coming back and everybody talking about it for the next 50 years. <laughs> you know, the next, uh, the next stage in terms of exploration is, is to be more holistic, first of all, with gender equality in the teams, but far, far more, more than that is to think about developing the kind of network of living systems that we are, are so lucky to be in already here on Earth, and we, we take it for granted all the time that we can breathe the air. Photosynthesis that plants grow by themselves. Photosynthesis that um, the water is clean because of the you know cycling process that goes on on a global scale in terms of water evaporating and going through the core of the earth. You know, massive global processes contribute to the presence of all of these resources that we you know consume casually. <laughs> on Mars, we're going to have to set up all of this stuff from scratch. So. Um, it's not uh, It's not an escape plan, it's a massive learning process in terms of reflecting and appreciating what we have already here on Earth um, and really trying to understand that system and all of its complexity by attempting boldly and very ambitiously to, to set up something else on another planet, which as far as we know does not host life, certainly not in the same abundant way that that Earth does.
0: No, well, how you prepare yourself mentally and emotionally. You know, I was thinking about this interview, Adriana, and I was talking to Vanessa about when you think about explorers throughout history, people have left their homes, they've left the familiar, they've left the people that they know, the cities, uh, the culture that they've known, and they've traveled for six months across the ocean to another country uh, to found a new world, so to speak. But they haven't left things like Air and um, ocean and wildlife and all those things that we, to your point, take for granted, but are such a huge part of being human. And so to to be able to leave those things behind, how do you even begin to prepare yourself for that mentally and emotionally?
2: So for me, I think it's less about preparing than doing, because I feel like I was born ready. Um, so I suppose what I, my task now is to find like-minded individuals who also feel they were born ready. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> the, next, the next wave of less crazy people can can spend time training and so on, because we can tell them what they need to know. <laughs> but <laughs> for the first ones to get there, it's typically a very instinctive kind of move. Um, you know, for example, the the early missions to Antarctica. Um, there's a lot of uh, literature on the comparing the leadership styles between like Shackleton and Amundsen and Scott and others who led expeditions, some more successful than others. And typically the way they chose their teams was on instinct within 30 seconds of meeting someone. Um, of course, when you need a specialized individual like a medic, you spend your time searching for a doctor, but often they would make flash decisions on how to build the team on instinct um, because in the end it's it's going to be quite an instinctive kind of activity that you're doing there, you know, Again, to compare it to what astronauts do in the space station, which is a, a lot of training, hundreds or thousands of people on the ground, contributing in very great detail to the activities that go on there, um, very protocol-driven, very detail-oriented. Um, that's the kind of activities we do in the space station because uh, it's dangerous and it's extreme, but it's uh, it has some level of predictability. When we go to Mars, this predictability disappears completely. So you don't necessarily... Um, only want the people who are detail-oriented and protocol-driven. You need people who can act on instinct, act quickly, act completely uh, beyond anything that's been prepared because a lot of the challenges that arise will be completely unforeseen. So they're kind of different personality types that are more suited for the different stages, I suppose, in, in this kind of exploration. Um, but I think uh, preparing mentally, for me, it's it's just really about... Um, making the biggest contribution that I can um, while I'm alive. So, so far, as we know, we live once and um, making a a bold move, like exploring a new planet. um, I think that would contribute uh, significantly to to the species moving forward in terms of our perspective and our knowledge. So uh, that's what, that's the preparation I go through, reminding myself that this is important.
1: When selecting a team, such as this, are there people literally waiting to to be part of this team or are there unicorns? Are you literally searching for unicorns? The medic that actually really wants to go to Mars and never come back, you know, and the, I don't know, architect or other scientists that have specializations, you know, are there unicorns or are there really these groups of people in all these sectors of life and industries that are waiting? Yeah, kind
2: of a bit of both, I suppose. So the Mars One project showed that uh, 200,000 people volunteered. Um, some of them did their their application video naked, for example. So not everyone was completely <laughs> serious. <laughs> so you'll, you'll get a lot of people uh, volunteering and then maybe re- changing their minds. Let's say, but um, there's certainly I think that's the benefit of having eight billion people on the planet. You know, often we see overpopulation as a, uh, a thing that, that we need to curb. Yes, that is on on the one hand, but on the other hand. With eight billion minds, you know nothing is nothing is impossible, and indeed finding a, a perfect combination of people who really get on and have similar objectives, I think, is completely within the sphere of the possible. Um, yeah, that's part of what what proudly human is trying to do from very very early stages. You know, we only only like nearly a year into our, our first since establishing the organisation. Um, but I'm happy to have the Mars 100, for example, as a network, um, plus all the other people I meet at various space conferences, astrobiology conferences, et cetera. And I would say, no, I don't think it will be challenging to get a group of people together, um, finding the right people. That's another question because we don't know what right is until we get there. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think if we look at exploration missions of the past, it can be a... You know, the groups of people that got together, some of them were escaping. Some were adventure seekers, just looking to explore new new parts of the world that they couldn't even have imagined before setting sail to the horizon. Some were, were highly skilled, who we were brought for specific reasons. Um, others just knew, knew people who were going and, and jumped on board. Um, others, I don't know, sailors hanging around the harbour and at the last minute decided they could also assist. So it's not going to be exactly the same as, as people jumping on boats um, a few hundred years ago. Slightly more preparation will, will be uh, required. But uh, in the end, I think that's that's who we are as humans. Um, Adventurers, explorers are amongst us, and the same curious, um, seemingly fearless people will be the ones who end up embarking on this voyage.
0: Is there a certain size team that you feel is ideal to take, and is there a certain balance of you know male female, uh, do you have any of those kinds of parameters established in your mind?
2: So the team that actually leaves Earth to go to Mars, that depends on the the transport systems, the capacity of of the spacecraft and how the tickets are allocated. So that's completely up in the air. But um, Proudly Human would like to try and understand uh, what kind of team sizes and what what kind of distribution of people would work. And I think going into these things without too many assumptions is a good place to start. So we plan to iterate through multiple different approaches. Um, but one thing I do find important is that the team members should have the chance to decide themselves who they go with. And this is not maybe typically part of a, an astronaut selection program or any other extreme environment training that we may envisage, but I think that's, that's crucial. You know, when I in the Mars One project, they would say a team of experts will select the team most suitable to to be the first one to go to Mars. And I'm like, well, please show me these experts and how they became experts on what kind of people would be best performing on the surface of Mars.
1: Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: So, in fact, the people who go should rather take priority in terms of making these kind of decisions, I believe. So at Proudly Human, we're going to play around with this where um, we have a, a group of people who've gone through some screening. Of course, we need to have a medic, two medics, in fact, in case the medic's injured. There's stories in Antarctica where medics have had to remove their. Someone had to remove their own appendix. Okay, so we try to avoid that by having two medics. So the minimal basic necessities that you you need, obviously, engineers are crucial to be able to fix and maintain equipment. Um, But beyond that, we would like the people who meet the minimum criteria to experiment and form their own teams. because the last thing you want is a group of people in a far-off, extreme, and hostile environment, you know, regretting the various people that are there with them. So we want uh, each person to take responsibility for being part of the selection of those people.
1: Well, even as part of the training, to give them maybe even a couple of years to work together, to weed some of those things out, I would think, you know, not just a a few months and say, okay, you guys are ready, have fun in Mars, (laughs) you know. Right, and to
0: experience the kinds of pressures that, build up over time I mean somebody right. might yeah. start out great yeah. exactly. but over time they, they could change radically in their mental health so
2: exactly and that and that's
0: why Antarctica is a great place to throw these people because
2: although we'll be there nine months um, because it's it's dark for weeks weeks of the year where the sun doesn't even come up it's kind of du- dusky twilight for other times <laughs> Um, it's a long and harsh uh, time to spend in a place where you really can't leave um, at all. You can't get any resupply missions if there's a disaster or an emergency. You have to fix it yourself. So these kind of pressure, pressure environments where people are then forced—this uh, is a shortcut, I guess—to to perhaps the decades that you'd like to have people working together. I think these ex- truly extreme environments—they're so not a simulation. Um, not like the high seas project where they go to the slopes of volcanic areas in Hawaii and pretend to be on Mars, but rather a truly harsh environment where uh, it's, it's really dangerous outside and, and things can go wrong if your equipment fails. I think mean, this accelerates exactly as you say.
1: How far are we with research and development from actually making this happen? You know, uh, you're obviously training on your own, but when can we potentially see this actually taking place?
2: I mean the the biggest hurdle to getting humans uh to Mars and beyond is a lack of imagination. Um let's go back to nineteen seventy-six. Nineteen seventy-six, okay, I wasn't born yet. And we landed rovers. I say we, uh NASA <laughs> managed to land rovers on the surface of Mars. Now, this was before the internet, before all sorts of things that, you know, young people will find just a flabbergasting that we managed to do anything useful without all of that technology. But this was done in 1976. And what I really hope is that the 50th anniversary of the Viking landings, which is happening in 2026, will be slightly more celebratory than the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, where, you know... Uh, The current NASA campaign is to send people back to the moon, which is kind of underwhelming for the next generation of of engineers and explorers who are looking to make the next giant leap for mankind is the best that we can do to go back to what we did 50 years ago. So let me not diverge too much, but the technology is plus minus in place. Um, people endure extremely harsh conditions on Earth, typically not out of choice, but out of poverty. So there's no limit to the the kind of human resilience um, that is possible in extreme environments. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the transport system we obviously need. We know it's existed since 1976, but now we need to put people on board. So admittedly, that is an incremental increase. What we need to do is demonstrate the landing of a big cargo on Mars. I'd say that's the only big hurdle now, a big cargo, because the rovers are like a couple of tons, and that's the best we've been able to do. To put like 100 tons on the surface of Mars is a slightly different um, you know, uh, protocol is required. Um, the parachuting uh, thing that the Curiosity employed, for example, um, would not work for such a big cargo. So there, there are practical reasons why we need to practice that. But once we are there, I mean, the space station is in vacuum. In the vacuum of space, we've been maintaining the space station and the living minds and bodies in there for decades, and putting up a settlement that's similarly insulated from the harshness of the outside environment on Mars is just far easier because it's not vacuum. There's this planet there, there's an atmosphere, there's resources, there's everything you need to to get that done. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening.
0: Adriana, you've given a lot of great um reasons that i think we can all wrap our minds around whether we're scientists or not about why we would want to explore mars why we'd want to understand if there could have been microbiological life there what the conditions are because all those things can help us even understand our own planet and develop technologies that would be helpful to us on our own planet better but i think a lot of people would ask uh, especially if they don't have a, a scientific sort of mindset like you do why would we want to colonize Mars? I mean, to your point, the people who live in these analogous conditions on on planet Earth, like Ethiopia and Antarctica, are are there not by choice, generally. So why would we want to colonize a planet like Mars? I can uh,
2: quote JFK for that. We're not doing it because it's easy. Um, Certainly not. So we're the kind of people uh, who, for whatever bizarre reason, enjoy uh, doing things because they are hard. because we learn immense amounts of information when we explore out of our comfort zone. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of people would say we shouldn't be investing in, in getting to Mars. We should be investing in fixing the planet. You know, haven't we destroyed Earth enough? Can we not leave it at that? Do we need to now go onto another planet and destroy that? Um, you know, there's so many challenges to fix on Earth. Why are we seeking new challenges elsewhere? And to all of these arguments, I mean, we can go back in history and You know, if we were sitting around a fire in a cave like 200,000 years ago, some members of that group around the warm fire would say, you're crazy, why are you going to hike over that mountain to see what's there? You're crazy. But people did that and they went over that mountain and established a community elsewhere. We left Africa and explored the rest of the uh, continents on the planet. Um, We've now covered most of the surface of the planet and the danger that we now face um, is self-extermination because we have reached the capacity of the resources um, on this planet, if not now, pretty soon, we will, because of our increased population growth, our refusal to kind of let go of this materialistic consumerist society that we live in. When you couple overpopulation with consumerism, there's a definite end point to this this trajectory. So, you know, Mars is not going to be easier than Earth, but I feel the lessons that we learn Um, in terms of getting out of our comfort zones into a really harsh environment will have immediate impact for the way we think and the way that we do things on earth. Um, You know, in the same way that intercontinental travel opened our minds to whether it be that the earth is not flat (laughs) all the way through to, you know, there are other cultures there that we can learn from. Um, You know, to what extent we've learned that, (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, But certainly exposure to new environments accelerates learning. I think Per, on a personal level we can all understand how travel for example opens our minds in terms of understanding what's happening in different parts of the world um, and getting to another planet will just literally be the next phase transition for humanity when we when we talk about earth um, as one of the planets in the solar system and not just this place where we are and we'll stay and you know so i think our, our distraction of the natural environment here will really really become a much more poignant issue when we see how harsh the, the surface of Mars is and what a beautiful Eden we have the luxury of living on here. Um, at least that's part of my hope that we really understand that this is a unique planet Earth and um, we should endeavor far with far greater ambition than we currently do to really protect the diversity of life here.
1: A question that many, many inquiring minds want to know, are we alone? How are you preparing for the potential encounter uh with an extraterrestrial
2: so my my boyfriend is actually an animal behavioralist and an expert with snakes um so communicating with species that you, you don't have any real way of communicating with this is his speciality so i'm bringing him along as an alien consultant um, Alien <laughs> consult- jobs of the future
1: ladies i know and gentlemen. that's amazing.
2: alien consultant, consultant. <laughs> i love
1: it that's
0: great
2: <laughs> So, I mean, you might you might actually want to think about people who are able to communicate in uh, other ways uh, like behavior and so on. Um, that's assuming that the creatures we find are intelligent enough to do that kind of communication and, and not so intelligent that they um, don't even bother to try and engage with us, which is another possibility. <laughs> um, so, so Mars um, looks pretty hostile. Life as we know it would not survive the radiation levels on the surface. So that means either life on Mars is not life as we know it, or it's surviving in pockets of uh, special environmental conditions under the surface. So we've had uh, decades of orbital missions and obviously ground observations from Earth looking at the surface. And besides some you know, controversial and mysterious formations like the face in Cydonia, um, we haven't really had any conclusive evidence of, of Intelligent life, or even even microbial life, from a non-controversial perspective, and I think uh, all scientists um, really look forward to a a, re- a real verification um, of some kind of non-chemical abiotic uh, sorry biotic <laughs> activity on the surface. The problem is that it's very difficult to distinguish complex chemistry from simple biology. Um, if you're looking through sending rovers and other Um, as sophisticated as possible, but not as sophisticated as we'd like to send because they're big and heavy as we have here on Earth. So we're limited by mass and size and transportability to the equipment that we send and we're looking for signatures of life, but um, we're not sure what kind of life may be there. So this is a very fascinating and very complex sort of job to be uh, an astrobiologist or working on a team that's sending a rover. Um, So in fact, I think I think it's gonna be easier when people are there to to really do large scale investigations into this question. Um, and I believe we will I believe this is a belief and opinion. I, I hope to to be either confirmed or proved wrong in my lifetime that there there was life on Mars and may still be in pockets underground. Because we know Mars once had oceans. so around four billion years in the early early stages of the solar system, there were large bodies of water on Mars. we can tell by erosion patterns like canyons, coastlines, pebbles, things like things like that that really indicate with a high level of probability there were large bodies of water there. And as we know on earth, um water bodies of water support a lot of life, even you know like these underground lakes in Antarctica that are separated from the surface by uh, hundreds of meters of ice. so, Life finds a way when there's liquid water involved, it seems. So I think on the one hand, we might find life that is related to life on Earth. This is probably the most likely outcome because um, tons of debris are exchanged between Earth and Mars every year. Um, whether that's an impact on the surface of Mars, shooting out debris into the air that then finds its way to Earth um, or whatever activity on the surface of Earth that makes its way out. Tons of debris is uh, received through the atmosphere of Earth from Mars. So amongst this this rock that gets uh, catapulted through the solar system and finds itself on the surface of Earth, it's quite possible that there were some living organisms in there at some point. So if life emerged first uh, between the two planets on Mars back in the day when they had oceans, then it could have been transported to Earth and that's how life could have evolved on Earth. So this is the less interesting of the two options because what, what people would really like to find is life that's nothing like life on Earth, um, completely different life that, that really like uh, yeah expands our understanding of, of what life is.
1: If it is the case that when this mission ta- happens, um, you don't return, are are you thinking in your head that you would think of potentially you know reproducing and creating you know new human life on that planet with the people that you have or do you foresee you know more tickets like people being on a waiting list tickets to go to Mars so they can like transport their families and you know more you know single human beings would just meet over there and and populate Mars yeah
2: most people Ask that question at some point, um, and plenty of sci-fi that tells us either yes or no for that answer. I would say the closest analogy we have is Antarctica. So the way Antarctica is managed is through the international treaty currently. Um, um, Countries have bases there where a lot of collaboration goes on, but uh, essentially it's experts who volunteer to go and spend some time there for the purpose of their expertise and research. So in the beginning, I assume Mars will, will be similar Um, with uh, people contracted to go build infrastructure basically and it will be some time probably not in our lifetimes before the infrastructure is you know from an ethical perspective reliable enough to like condone or endorse even the um, reproduction there and families getting set up there and so on but on the other hand and um, when we look at the Mayflower, and I was in Provincetown and spoke to an archivist um, who had uh, been involved in the story, and there were three pregnant women on the Mayflower when they left from England, three, and mm. actually all survived, yeah, all survived until childbirth. So um, I think one of the child, children died quite young, a few months old, but they actually survived that winter. Um, and talking about going into the unknown, I mean, they arrived in, in the – on the New England coast, north accident, not accidentally, but the, the sea resulted in their landing and docking at a place far north of the Virginia colony where they were headed. The winter was much colder than what they were used to in England. Um, so, you know, comparing this to Mars, you know, we know what the average temperature will be when we get there. They didn't. They didn't. They they uh, stayed in their ship, in fact, for for the duration of the winter, having arrived in like November. Um, only half survived the winter until they were able to go onto shore and set up their actual habitats. Um, once the, the spring and summer had uh, come about the next year um so you know again the resilience of the human mind and body is far greater than we imagine most of the time um so who knows who knows how that will pan out but i suppose the closest analogy is, is antarctica um so if, if you know someone who's been to antarctica that may be similar in the future like you know someone who's done some contract work on mars <laughs> so
1: right <of>
0: right <laughs> it's, it's interesting because i was talking about this interview earlier with my daughter who's a a rising senior in college, and she said to me, and I thought this was insightful, what you all will do is very similar to coming full circle with becoming hunter-gatherers almost, again, except with technology, because that's what you'll have to do in Ethiopia. That's what you'll have to do. I well, don't know how much hunting and gathering there is to be done in Antarctica, but but it's just sort of interesting to see humanity going in, kind of in a full circle like that.
2: That's exactly what uh, I was. I, I really love giving talks at schools whenever I can fit them in. Um, and I did one last year, and a, I think a ten-year-old or so said, after everything I'd done, put up put up his hand and said, "So." And oh no, it was a girl? She said, "So, so you'll basically be living in caves, but you'll have a 3D printer." I said, "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> and that, 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 that's what she had in mind—that we would go back to to, uh, well, I mean, and that's what we want to go back to, right? We want to go back to a deeper connection with our environment because we're living under this illusion that somehow we can, you know, build these um, cities and infrastructure and lifestyles that are so detached from the the resource base, namely the planet um, that supports us. You know, we've forgotten about the intricacy of systems required to provide us with air, to provide us with water. You know, we think we turn on the tap and that's when it comes out. So I think a reconnection with the, the nitty-gritty of the environment in which you find yourself is an essential part of, of the next phase for our species, um, whether we're living in a cave underground on Mars or whether we're living in a city on Earth. And I think that trend is happening already. I just hope it's happening fast enough where we want to get back to knowing where our food came from, understanding you know why our water is clean or is not clean um, and trying to reconnect yeah, with the, both the natural world and the sort of physical world, um, namely the planet where we are.
0: Did I also read that you are doing an ocean uh, off-world settlement as well? Yeah, so we want to do lots of iterations. The
2: Antarctica one is um, the most complicated because we need special permits to do the kind of experiments that we want to do. It's quite an unusual combination of things we want to do, so that's on the one hand. Um, the Ethiopia mission uh, is pretty hostile, but we, we hope to tick that off first um, in terms of the lineup, um, and also, yes, interact with, with people who do exist in these uh, harsh environments. But so we've done the, the hottest place, the coldest place in the hot place, and the desert, we're going to be experimenting with 3D printing from sand, solar power, um, battery performance under high heats, and that kind of thing, Antarctica, there's a lot of water, which is not similar to Mars, but we'll be looking at the cold and the isolation, etc. Um, So to complete the data, and we're going to iterate through these many times. So once we've got our permit to go to Antarctica, there's nothing stopping us from doing that every year, for example. Maybe maybe not me personally after the first uh, iteration. But uh, what's missing from that data set is having a habitat that's required to be completely sealed from the exterior world. So 3D printing from sand using solar power, very cold conditions. These seem to be stuff we'll explore in both of those environments. But in terms of the requirements of like airlocks and um, you know that aspect of the technology as well as the physical realization that you you will like die in a few minutes if you go out outside because you can't breathe, etc. Um, underwater seems the the best approximation for this. Um, this is also exciting in terms of. Um, you know, people might say I'm the Mars lady or something, but I don't want to be boxed in by Mars because um, Europa is a great place where we'd also like to explore uh, a moon of Jupiter that has an icy layer around the surface of the moon, but underneath that surface there is liquid water. Um, there've been several flyby missions that have um, tried to detect the plumes of liquid that come squirting out there periodically, and trying to understand whether there may be life in this, in this under ice uh, ocean. So this this uh, mission, um, of course, this is not uh, completely undone, you know, submarine warfare <laughs> since the Second World War. So we, we've been able to sustain human populations under the ocean. Uh, there are some high-end private companies, I think, that offer um, experiences where couples, I think I read, go and spend a very... Uh, Secluded, say weekend under the ocean in some kind of luxury facility. So these things do exist. Um, but again, we want to integrate all of our objectives into this kind of project as well.
0: Do you come from a long line of women badasses in your family? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you get this from?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, just to like piggyback on that, I just how did your family feel about your just certainty and unwavering like decision about you know this is a life altering decision.
2: So my my parents, um, I think they were directly quoted as saying they were were not surprised. I think that's like all they said. like, were you surprised? No. (laughs) Um, They've known me uh, for the longest, I guess, (laughs) out of everyone. And they weren't surprised at all. They said, well, if there are people going to Mars, then yeah, it sounds quite uh, natural that you would want to be amongst them. Um, Yeah, talking about the history of women in my family, I have to then reference my great-grandmother, who was studying medicine in Dublin? So, this is my great great grandmother. Uh, so, in the late, mid to late 1800s, studying medicine in Dublin, first of all. Then she dropped out um, because she'd met a sea captain and she made a, a voyage with him to Zimbabwe, obviously via some coastal uh, destination. And so my family, who was Irish before that, um, now has a, a lineage that came out of Zimbabwe. So this was when she was like 21. She not, was not only studying men's, and she dropped out and moved to Zimbabwe, which was a pretty uh, otherworldly location, I guess. For people. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> um, on the other side of my family, that that was the Marev. That's my mother's side now. So on the Marev side... Um, He's, this was the Marais family that packed up from uh, France because of religious persecution and made the treacherous, like, unprecedented for their community, of course, journey down to Cape Town, um, which the whole family survived. Uh, they'd come with four children and the, and the mother and father, and they set up what became a wine farm uh, on the agricultural land they were given. So, yeah, I think partly it's genetic that um, not only did people in my in my ancestry pick up and make huge journeys, but they survived. And that was crucial because not a lot of people did survive. So so for those of us who have a history of adventurers um, and we're living proof that they made it, I think there, there must be some something in the, in the genetics um, that, that gets passed on.
1: You come by it honestly. <laughs> yes, it's in your blood. Adriana, you wanted to touch on the launch in Cape Town. We'd love to learn about it.
2: So we wanted to give the public an opportunity to know what we what we mean by this awful habitat, what we mean by this team operating all of their power and water and food and communication systems. So what we had planned to do was take our habitat put it somewhere like the Cape Town waterfront out on a pier which is protected from the public and then have a big dashboard that the public can interact with the people in the habitat through at certain times of the day there can be a live video with Q&A, at other times there will be video clips of what they're busy doing there um, the idea would be that the solar panels plus the wind turbines would generate the power and you can watch how much power is being generated on that dashboard. Um, the water extraction from the atmosphere would be running, so you'd be able to see how you know, the, the humidity levels can actually be converted into a supply of water. Um, the crops that they grow over the brief period of two weeks would be more like little seedlings and things, and the communication would obviously be running the whole, the whole dashboard. So, we wanted to give this opportunity to young people, so either undergrad students or young entrepreneurs, to demonstrate their skills and their vision for, for their profession and, and the world through volunteering to come and spend time in this habitat. So, that's a bit uh, unsure about when, when we will hold that now. So, we are waiting and seeing with that. But in the meantime, we're really excited that we will be building, as I've explained now. A interactive display plus experiments at the Cape Town Science Centre. Um, so again, I think I think especially children, because uh, if I don't go to Mars, these are the people who are going to go <laughs> in my stead in the next <laughs> 20, 30 years, um, to give the kids who come to the science centre a chance to walk into the habitat, you know, see how the food is grown, with the water that we extract from the air, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, even, even use the composting toilet, which we also need to test.
0: Oh.
2: <laughs> very interactive, very interactive. Um, to give people a look and feel uh, and a tangible um, experience of what we mean by this whole experiment, which is truly like setting up a community in an extreme environment and it's something tangible, and we hope to convey that. Um, inspire some future dreamers um, and to also get uh, adults to practically understand what we mean because sometimes mm-hmm. like, right
1: looking at that and being there in person too would just uh, get your mind going on all the details that you have to take into consideration you mm-hmm. know taking on a mission like this i mean there's a lot you Yeah, know,
2: so. getting everything working in combination that's the key so the wind turbine may function perfectly but how does it interface with the rest of your technology um, yep. That's something which we need to go step by step um, to demonstrate. But of course, the technology can all work perfectly. Uh, by far the greatest challenge, I think, uh, is the people, and we started off by asking questions on that, and that's that's going to be the main focus, um, is to try and uh, de- generate a, a theory on, on what kind of teams would be able to pull this kind of thing off.
0: Right. Oh, incredible. You, this yep. has been such a fascinating conversation.
1: All right, Adriana, over here on Lightning Round, and we like to ask these series of questions to all of our guests just to get to know them on a deeper level. First exercise, finish this sentence. Women are? Original. Uh, I think the origin of life, the
2: mitochondrial DNA gets passed through us. So we have the, the broader uh, chromosomal set. Um, yeah, original. What are three pieces
0: of advice that you would give your younger self?
2: Be bold because I think let me, yeah, I'm probably gonna confuse things by not giving three. But I think it's taken me a while to realize that uh, I can give my opinion in a a group of people that I would have thought knew more than me. Um, So let me rather rattle on instead of giving three concise points. But I think have faith in your opinions. uh, Be bold about your thoughts. You know, you don't. That doesn't mean being arrogant, but that just means taking a moment to consider that maybe you do know better than everyone in the room um, and be, you, can be humble. you can be humble mm-hmm. in your delivery, but uh, share your opinion, it may well be the one.
1: What is your current favorite application of tech for good?
2: I think 3D, 3D printing I'm really excited about and especially to see what the next wave uh, after the current understanding of what 3D printers can do will be. Because um, I think back to the biomimicry, What life does is uh, eke out an existence in the environment in which it finds itself. You know, plants and a big, beautiful tree is able to grow just from extracting the things it needs from the dirt underneath it, the light from the the sun and the water that it finds. Um, So that's what we need to get better at doing. Um, We can't continue to extract uh, rare and uh, deep-seated under the crust of the Earth, minerals from all corners of the Earth to support ourselves. We have to become more locally resilient. Um, we could learn that from from things like photosynthesis, um, and we can perhaps implement it in 3D printing, where your waste, you know, your your waste disposal in your household should ideally be recycled back into the products that you need. You know, imagine 3D printing your new phone update from all the electronics you threw out last year. You know, that's where we hit it.
0: What issue do you most hope that technology will help resolve in the future?
2: So probably then let me refer back to the 3D printing because more than the 3D printer itself, it's about being more resource efficient. So we have to understand where our resources come from, try to do more with less, and actually revolutionize the way that we live our daily lives um, in terms of being way more resource efficient. You know, recycling is just the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, we actually need to to reimagine um, how we how we connect with each other and how we move ourselves around all of the different functions from transport to communication to power. Um, we need to do more with less. So I think we need to throw a lot more money at research, a lot more time, and uh, invest resources in research because these are big questions. Um, but I think becoming more resource efficient. Yeah.
1: What do you wish to learn more about?
2: Yeah, where we come from. I think so. That's a question everyone plays with as while staring up at at the night sky. But I would truly like to understand, you know, the context of what was going on in our galaxy before life emerged on Earth. Um, What was going on on Mars when Mars had oceans? Um, Where did our oceans come from? Because uh, research and analysis tells us our oceans are older than the sun. Um, so I want to understand context. I want to contribute to the future, but I want to understand more broadly, the context of, of our past.
0: That's fascinating. Our oceans are older than the sun.
2: Yes. So portions of it. So the deuteration levels, which means the, the number of hydrogen atoms that are in the H2O that have an extra neutron, um, is more than we'd expect. So how do you add an extra neutron? It's a, It can be induced by radiation from the sun. But even when we look at the sun's entire lifespan, we see more neutrons inside the hydrogen atoms than the sun could have caused. So basically our oceans were being shone on by another star or some other form of energy before that.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, I know
2: I didn't know that.
1: Insert mind blown emoji there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. What inspires you? I think other people following their dreams so some people's dreams seem crazy and bold and I guess mine is one of those, but part of the inspiration I draw from others is seeing them achieve what would have seemed impossible before we saw it being achieved. Um, so whether that's from through history or just by people you know around you, um, seeing people boldly dismissing the criticisms that uh, their endeavor is uh, likely going to fail um, and continuing Uh, you know, unabated by uh, the opinions of others. Um, So I suppose a a real sense of purpose and watching a real sense of purpose in others um, inspires me to continue.
1: Describe the future in one word. The future
2: is unknown. Um, So I think part of this, you know, we're we're all feeling very uncertain. The world is getting increasingly complex and absurd, um, contradictory, ridiculous. Um, We can put all sorts of, of... phrases to it. I suppose uncertainty is the biggest one. But I think we need to remember our agency. The future is unknown and undetermined. That doesn't mean that we are walking into it blind. That means that we have the power to to shift what kind of future we are going into. The future is not determined yet. Um, it's also unknown, which can be scary. But we need to remember that we have the power to... to we have more power than we realize in influencing what kind of future we emerge into. Um, so in spite of being unknown that can also be seen as an opportunity um, to to create the kind of future that we want to see happening.
0: Fill in the blank. Blank like a
2: girl. Explore like a girl. I think children are the most curious explorers. Um, and as a girl, I was always... Uh, climbing and exploring and uh, sneaking out of the house and doing all sorts of things to expand my knowledge of the world. And I haven't
1: stopped. (laughs) Yes. We're always talking about children's brains and how Mm -hmm. much we adore that and, and wish that we could all still have that sense of wonder, you know, Mm -hmm. um, as we, as we grow old. Adriana, this has been, uh, Fascinating, inspiring, uh, just tremendous. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and um, delving into all of these, you know, things that we probably dream about and wonder about, but never really have a chance to like take deep dives into. And I think the work you're doing is so incredible. Yes, um, please please keep in touch with us and i want you to like inform us of like all these projects as they come are your experiments going in antarctica and in the ocean and your off-world um extreme uh, testing we'd love to just touch base with you from time to time if you don't mind and just have a conversation to see how it's going because Mm -hmm. from now to you know 2026 we have some time to chat (laughs) That's right. and i will
0: say the absolute best of, of wishes to you when you do which i know you will get to mars and i hope that you decide if you have the option to come back to earth because i think we need your voice and your energy and your passion and your uh, just your brilliant mind so yes so, so your
1: grit yes, your grit. Your grit. <laughs> we like to use that word so okay where can people find you online and find more information about uh your mission and um uh, powerfully human
2: Thanks so much for having me and the lovely conversation. And yeah, I really enjoy it. So thanks. For now, uh, while I'm still on Earth, um, I'll be updating on, on Proudly Human activities uh, either under Adriana Murray on Twitter or Instagram um, or LinkedIn and proudlyhuman.com is a website where you can read more about, more about the Proudly Human endeavor. Um, there's also space to add your details in case you have a skill or a desire to contribute to any of these missions. Um, we'll be firming up everything in the, in the next few months. So thanks for this opportunity to, to share my thoughts um, ahead of actually embarking in journeys into the unknown, given that we're currently locked on.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. No, thank you. And thank I you. have a three-year-old toddler, and she, one of her favorite movies is Toy Story. So I think this is so appropriate in the words of Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond. <laughs> and beyond. <laughs> I mean, Godspeed to you. Yes.
2: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a
0: big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A.
1: We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.